Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. I thought what we would do is a little bit of Hanukkah Torah, uh, because I have worked really hard in my life to come to any kind of adult appreciation of this holiday. Um, for those of us who grew up in this country with Hanukkah being um, the holiday of presence and essentially a Jewish kind of winter festival um, in, in a society that celebrates, of course, Christmas, it was very hard when I outgrew the present thing to understand why the heck we, we do this all Hanukkah business. Like, why should, why should I bother? And then I just didn't bother for the most part until I became a rabbi and then figured out, okay, I'm going to have to figure out a way to make peace with Hanukkah, right? To make this somehow compelling, um, as a grown up Jew, uh, if I'm going to be able in any way to transmit a connection, um, to my congregation. So I struggled for years to come up with um, an adult relationship to Hanukkah and truly a way of experiencing this uh, holiday that could uh, be reconstructed um, so that so I could embrace it and, and share it with other people. So I'm going to give you what I have gleaned um, over the years, some of it, um, uh, and it changes year to year, and there's probably about five major ways um, that I have reconstructed Hanukkah. One was what we did last night here, which was we showed an environmental film and had a discussion with the filmmakers. The, the film was Dirt. And um, what that, for me, is about is taking one cruise of oil and having it last eight times longer than it currently does. And that is the miracle that's going to have to happen in our time if we're going to turn the ship and if we're going to stop climate change from destroying everything on the planet, ourselves included. Um, so for me, moving into the sense of hope about there being one little flame, one little candle every night, and then by the eighth night, it's glowing brightly. For me, the message um, on an environmental level, on a consumption level, uh, is... We each have to do our part. We, we, I, we get so overwhelmed with, you know, this learned helplessness response that we can't do anything, right? That it's too late or it's too big or it's too much and we can't do it. That we get so overwhelmed that we don't do anything much, any of us. So, um, so for me, that's a really one really important way of reconstructing Hanukkah is, is dedicating ourselves at this season to learning, to discussing, to being inspired by people who are really at the forefront of the environmental movement and connecting that to our sense of, um, of holy vocation. But we as a people need to help be influencers of, of the consumer culture that we live in particularly at the season of consumption. You know, right? So for me, it's a counter message, a counterpoint to the theme that we marinate in, buy and buy and buy some more because it's the holidays. Um, so... I wanted my, I almost 
felt like I was trying to create equivalent to all the excitement around Christmas. Mm-hmm. I had kids and they were aware of what was going on. And I, I don't think that's the right way to go. <laughs> you know, I, you can't really win in that way. Yeah, so I, um, I think for us as American Jews that the relationship to Christmas cannot be ignored, particularly once you have children. That's what we live in. We live in a Christmified world at this time of year. I remember one time we were driving in the car in Duluth and Ellie was, my daughter was probably about three or four and we're driving and she says, I hate that gas station. I'm like, we pass that gas station every day. What, well, what's the hate about a gas station? I said, first of all, hate is a strong word. We don't use that word. Um, and after that, of course, mandatory, you know, <laughs> commentary. I, you know, I said, so what, what's wrong with the gas station? And she goes, because it's not mine now. And then I'm like, what do you mean it's not you? You didn't have a gas station, honey. I hate to break it to you. And and she was, of course, talking about the Santa, the big blow-up Santa, that, that, that what used to be hers, she now understood to be other. Than, than her because it had Christmas on it and so so even the normal things like going to the grocery store right become charged char- thank you charged you know for for little kids who are trying to figure all this out so so there's no way to get around it there's no way to avoid it and I think you know doing Hanukkah for them is fun and it's lovely and it's never going to compare to Santa. Um, but, you know, there are some kids, and my daughter was one of them, who said, you know, we have eight nights, you have one. Right? So, on some level, she really believed that was, like, awesome, right, awesome, and was around enough non-Jewish grown-ups who gave her things when she went to their house, right, that she was just fine doing Hanukkah and then getting Christmas benefits. Right? As an ally of Christmas. Right? Um... So, but I think you're right that that for me, anyways, like I knew I couldn't win. That that wasn't going to do it really for me. Like I, there had to be something else. So we've. I have a similar story about the power and influence of Christmas. Uh, one of our daughters, at about age six, uh, asked why we couldn't have a Christmas tree, and I said because we're not Christian. And she says, so let's be Christian. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Makes complete sense. Doesn't it? And then you said... <laughs> <laughs> if only it were that simple, honey. And you laughed and everybody went on to commercial So, So one is the environmental factor. That's really, that's really important for me. Um... So, so the other one is, what, what do we as non-fundamentalist Jews do with the story of a miracle, right, of oil, when we don't believe in a God who punctuates history and punctuates the world and makes miracles happen, per se? So, like, I, I always had this, this kind of conflicted feeling about, celebrate the miracle, and it's like, I don't believe in miracles that way. So, you know, like... How does that redeem the holiday? Okay, it redeems it from one aspect, which we're going to talk about, um, and does something else. But then Rabbi Arthur Waskow um, had a lovely way of looking at that whole move of the rabbis to make it about the miracle. Um, and in a really important way, he said they were 
reconstructing the holiday. Let's look at what they were reconstructing, and is that informative for us? And I think, and I think it is. All right. So, but first of all, we have to review uh, a little bit about uh, the holiday. So, tell me what we know about the history, the original history of the holiday. What do we know? Maccabees. All right. Before the Maccabees. Before them. Let's go to Alexander. When is Alexander? The Great. All right. So Alexander conquers the world, right? Part of his empire included, of course, Egypt, Israel, what's now, right? Syria, Iran. All of that was part of Alexander's empire. What were you going to say, Mickey? Oh, well, he divided his empire into three parts. So what happened was he died. Yes, he had died first. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't interested in dividing anything, right? Necessarily, you know, he he was he was the great ruler. But upon his death, it gets divided into three parts. What are the three parts? The Seleucids. The Seleucids. Yeah. He gets credit just for that. Well, they're the ones we need to worry about the most, right? So so there's different kinds of Greeks at this time. And the ones that come to be the ones that we're dealing with, right, are the Syrian Greeks. So they eventually... They, they come into... Tell, tell me about Alexander and his approach to religion. He was a friend of the Jews. He was a friend of the Jews. How come? What made him a friend of the Jews? I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> Rabbi Renner. My understanding was that one of his approaches to governance was to have his governors and top military commanders marry local people. So it was his ruling people, but they were allied and connected to whoever the locals were. Because if you have those guys really intermingling with the local population, you have less of a a chance of uprising. So the other way he believed he could lessen the chances of a a revolution, right, of an uprising, is connect to the people through his top leadership and allow the people their local customs, their local religious traditions, and even join them. Because that's what the Greeks, you, when you traveled in the ancient, you went here and you worshipped in their temple. You go here, you worship Isis. You go here, right? So it was completely fine. They had a pantheon, the Greeks. They could understand everybody. The Canaanite pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon, it's all lovely. There was a lot of syncretistic worship. The Ashtarte is Isis is actually, you know, I don't know who in the Greek pantheon, Athena, you know what I mean? So that that goddess has many names in different cultures, and it's fine. We can worship her in lots of different ways. As Isis, as Astarte, as Ishtar, doesn't matter. It's the same goddess, right? So they had no problem with that. The Hellenizing Greek influence was all about you know, local custom, local color is fine. It's wonderful. What we really care about is philosophy. The gymnasium. 
you know, what we really care about is the perfection of the body and the perfection of mind as expressed through the perfection of the body, right? All these, you know, things that we know they were known for, the arts and, right, um, great theater. Like, they, they weren't so interested. It, is it Yahweh? Is it Baal? Is it Ishtar? Who cares? All right. That changes. And that's the big change we're dealing with. There, there's a lot of versions of why Antiochus gets so angry. <laughs> um, but one of them is that Jason, the high priest, who um, was uh, a, a puppet of the, the ruler before Antiochus, sees the opportunity as Antiochus has gone off to battle to seize the, the priesthood. Uh, I mean, the folks want to seize it from Jason. Anyway, so Antiochus, anyway, comes back furious from a battle and just in general has a much different understanding of what it means to rule. He believes that local people having their own religion and having their own customs that are associated with a place and the history of that place is going to absolutely lead to revolt. It's going to lead to an uprising. And he is not of this Greek mindset that says, you know, really, really there are other overarching things that are more important and the local religious cult isn't so critical. He believes everybody has to worship the same way. You have to have the same gods. You have to have a state religion. You, you know, the, the, the state and the military power and the religious authorities all have to line up and he will crush any local display of religious you know, and any expression of local religion that is not the state religion. So, so that's that's the situation we're in when we meet the Maccabees. Right. So they are being pressured and forced into a public expression of allegiance with the dominant religion. The Jews are. Their temple has been right turned into. A, Essentially, you know, pagan uh, worship site with a gymnasium, you know, next door, and so the the Jews start to right. Of course, anybody got an English word? Revolt. Revolt. <laughs> they find this revolting. It's, it's the irony that had it just continued allowing people to worship, there would be a revolt. It really strikes a chord as a parent of somebody who's becoming a teenager. Maybe <laughs> maybe there is a lesson here for the modern life about imposing, you know, trying to control something so that it, you know, the revolt doesn't happen will cause the revolt to happen. So here are the yes. two philosophies yes. at work right here, right? <laughs> right. Because it's an ongoing question. I, you know, if they had not cracked down, would there have been a revolt? There wouldn't have been maybe that strong a need to revolt against something. Then again, strong enough local attachment, strong enough local culture might eventually start to say, you know, why do we need Alexandria? Right. So who knows? doesn't matter. There are two philosophies that have clashed throughout human history. As long as you've got leaders and rulers, you've got this clash of... Of ideas. It sounds like Ferguson to me. <laughs> Either let them be or try to integrate and get to know the 
Typical Jewish position. <laughs> we brought it on ourselves. Like, this is typical, right? Is, is it accurate? Uh, you know, Antiochus brought it on. You know, Hellenism brought it on. You know, uh, the, whenever you have something coming in as a dominant culture, then you have response, then you have react, for every action, there's a reaction. So, you know, it's just the dynamics of human politics that. Somebody comes in and they're going to say, this is how it's going to go. Guess what? There's going to be arguments about that. You kind of see it today in Israel with the rise of the ultra-Orthodox and the rise of... Exactly. So let's, so let's go there. So let's go there. So, so you've got folks who are Jews who are being Hellenized. And they're perfectly fine being Hellenized. The same ones who were just fine in Babylonia and don't come back. Right when they get permission to come back and rebuild the temple, they're like, "Thanks, I'll send my you know dinars you know uh, from my business to you and happy building." Gay gazunt, gazunt hey, I'm not coming back. Like there's no back for me. I li- they live here. I'm doing just fine, thank you. In New York, so this is the same with the Hellenized Jews, but there are some who say. Absolutely not. We must be able, right, to express a Jewish life. Sorry. And to be forced to eat pork, like as a public humiliation and as a public affirmation of, you know, the dominant culture wins, the dominant religion wins. Some said that's the bottom, that's the last straw. Who's one of those guys? Mati Tiao. Mattathias. The father. Exactly. So Mattathias has five sons. And it's this group of ultra Orthodox, right, the resistors to Hellenization, who said it stops here. Right? And there's that whole incident in Modi'in where he's he's there he's forced to eat pig publicly and says not only says no but then here we go with fundamentalism here's when you talk about the danger what does he do to the Jew who's gonna do it so that he doesn't die kills him this is the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin may his memory be for a blessing who killed Rabin Uh, and what was his reasoning why why would a Jew kill Rabin huh and so what did fundamentalism fundamentalism say about Rabin? He wasn't good enough. Well, he was going to give away Israel. He's making peace with peace. And, what, and, and why, so 
Show me the connection. He's going to make peace. Ah. His way of solving the problem, his way of working with, you know, the powers that be in the world is going to destroy us. And if it's going to destroy us, then I have an obligation to destroy him first. This is the craziness of fundamentalism. So it's no different, right, if we're dealing with it in 165 BCE or we're dealing with it in 1990, whatever it was, um, with our beloved leader. Yes? It's the same same things going on. So, so, so you see how I feel about the... <laughs> The Maccabees, as does I believe Rabbi Renner, if I could speak for you, right? We're not big fans. We're not big fans. But but Arthur Waskow pulls it out. It's okay. <laughs> so he has five sons, and essentially this incident that goes down in Modi'in now means there's going to be a confrontation, right? So they flee with a bunch of folk who are also ready to fight um, for, you know, for this ability to resist the Hellenizers, which are now, of course, Antiochus's folk, which is a little different than Greek Hellenizing as it had been before. But anyway, that influence, right, to, to go with the dominant religion. So they, they flee to the hills. What have we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan about local populations who don't want you there? What have we learned? You can't bomb them. <laughs> you can't bomb them. <laughs> right, so, so what do we know? Just tell me someone what we know. They're dangerous. They're dangerous. How are they dangerous? They know their region. They can find you. And they're smaller than you. And they can still... They control the land. They control the land. They know the land. They control the environment. So when Antiochus sends in forces to deal with this, you have farmers, essentially, you know, with their pitchforks and their hoes and their, you know, whatever, and they're in the hills, and they're putting IEDs all in the way of that invading army. It's a guerrilla. It's a guerrilla action. You can't identify them. You cannot identify them. You can't identify them. So, I mean, you can terrorize the civilian population because they all look the same. Okay, just terrorize anybody you see who looks like, you know, uh, an Israelite local. Okay, you could do that. That's not going to help you, right? Because you can't identify the actual fighters because they're safe. And who's protecting those fighters? The entire local population is feeding them, supplying them, Hiding them, arming them, so and providing recruits and providing recruits. Because once you have that first victory against Antiochus's forces, you now have a recruitment tool, don't you? So they recruit more fighters. Antiochus sends in a bigger army, and they too are defeated. And they're so roundly defeated that these folk make it through to Jerusalem. They break through to Jerusalem. Okay? So they take they take Jerusalem, which had become a, a Greek city, a Greek polis. All right, so who, what? So we call them the what? Maccabees. 
Ma-ka-bi. Huh. Mi? Mi? Kamocha? Ba'elim? Adonai? On the shield. Mi kamocha ba'elim Adonai. There is no force. We witnessed it at the sea. We will witness it again. Pharaoh and his army. What are they next to you, O God? Here we go. We can do this because we fight on the side of the good and the right and the true. We fight on the side of God. Get out of our way. Mi kamocha ba'elim Adonai. Makabi. So kind of your warriors, right, saying we fight on the side of God. There is nothing that can stop us. And in fact, they have this lovely victory. Rabbi? To this day in modern Israel, in Machedet, in the same um, spelling, is actually a sledgehammer. Yes. So Judah the hammer, right? So the word, the word um, can mean hammer. So this is how he gets the nickname Judah the hammer. Other people say, it's from, it's an, it's an acronym, people. It's an acronym. Who knows which it is? Um, but I figured you hadn't heard this one. <laughs> you yeah, heard the hand. They taught that this weekend in Hebrew school. Right. I don't know. Maybe they that. All right. Well, they didn't teach it this way. <laughs> I can tell you they're not talking about them as fundy. Yeah, why not? Right. How come this is the first time we're hearing about Right? But that's why we do this. All right. Because, good. I'm glad it's the first time you're hearing it. <laughs> All right, so they, they take the temple, and what are we told they do when they take over the temple? What do they have to do? Rededicate it. They have to rededicate the temple. What does that involve? Making it pure. Making it pure because it had been defiled. We've studied together a lot, Torah. We've studied about the Mishkan, the tabernacle. We've studied some about the temple. Talk to me a little bit about purity, impurity. What, what might it look like to repurify the temple? Spilling blood. You can make an offering once the temple's purified, and then the offering, right, then the blood as ritual detergent will cleanse, right, the area as it is supposed to do of sin. The detritus, the ickiness of sin. But you gotta have a pure place to do that, right? So they had to clear away rubble. Like just basics. They had to sweep. They had to mop, right? They had to clean the temple. So then, let's say they finally get everything ready, everything is finally restored, everything's removed, it's not supposed to be there, everything's in there, that's supposed to be in there. Now you have to dedicate the temple. Is there a manual for that? Oh, should your temple become desecrated (laughs) by hostile forces and pigs are put on the altar and statues are put up of Zeus, here's what you do. Right? There's no manual. So what do they do? It's time to rededicate the temple. What what would you do? Go back to the beginning instructions. You'd go back to the beginning instructions. And where would I find those as a Maccabee? Torah. Torah. Reuben. Yes. <laughs> I'm so impressed and moved with that answer. Yes. Yes. Torah. You go to Torah. All right. That's the instruction manual. 
What, where am I going to look in Torah? Where the temple is built. Ha, 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 ha. Sarah wins. Sarah is a true Hasmonean. <laughs> Righteous family that's now going to take over the priesthood. So they look at what happened when that guy Solomon built that big old temple. Right? What happened when the Mishkan was erected? What, what happened when, the, uh, when other temples had to get dedicated? Right? Let's do something like that. Solomon looked at the holiday of Sukkot, Thanksgiving, right, for his model, right? And looking at dedication ceremonies related to, you know, Mishkan and other things, they decide that they are going to make this an eight-day festival. That's what you do when you're dedicating a temple. The instruction manual says... The old one for the old temple says that's what you do. Okay. An eight-day festival. Lovely. So now when you're going to dedicate the temple and you're having this eight-day festival, they, according to legend, they are going to light the menorah. They have to light the seven-branched menorah as part of the daily temple ritual. Right? And they find a cruise of oil. That's supposed to last for one day. One day. But it's not enough for the eight-day festival. So, for all practical purposes, what should you do? Okay, wait, wait, let me give you some more information. So, you've got one cruise of oil. It lasts for one day. It takes four days to travel to the place where oil is not only purified, but you find the finest oil. And Talmud tells us what that place is. And then four days to come back. So, now you know... Okay, so that's going to take eight days. we got this eight-day festival. We've got one cruise of oil to last for one day. What should we do? Use an eighth of a cruise a day. <laughs> Use an eighth of a cruise a day, which is not going to be enough to give us our menorah. Wait, wait. Wait! wait. You wait! Right? Is that what they do? I guess not. Right, so that's right the story that we know. Uh, when they went to light that menorah, there was one cruise. It would take seven days to get more oil. And miraculously, it lasts for the entire eight-day festival. Okay, lovely. So this story is recorded in the Talmud about 700 years right after the events that we're dealing with. So this is not an early tradition associated with Hanukkah. It is the rededication of the temple. It is the rule, the you know, the taking over by the Hasmoneans. They rule for how long? They rule for a hundred years. Is there any historical evidence outside of this that these events happened? Yeah, th- yes. That there was in fact a revolt. And there continues to be tension. The Hasmoneans are not popular. There are folk who not, are not happy that the, the political leadership and the priesthood are now bound together again. Right? Religion and state are now one. There's always been a <coughs> checks and balance system. There was the king and there was the high priest. That was on purpose. Right? So that you have church and state with their own interests always kind of Intention, which then means the people benefit. As long as those things are intention, hopefully the best solution, some kind of medium solution between them, is, is where the people will get the benefit. 
When the church and state are together, we know what happens, don't we? Anybody heard about the Inquisition? <laughs> you know, when when the church can control the the state and vice versa, it's it's not good. So for a lot of people, so there was a lot of resistance to the Hasmoneans, a lot of pushback against them, a lot of internal junk going on, a lot of um, internal civil disagreement and tension and problems, and it finally all starts to come apart. And what happens for Jews living under uh, other rule is that there continue to be experiences of revolt against that rule, and then what happens in general when the Jews rebel? What happens in general when Jews in Israel rebel? Right, they lose and we get a holiday. <laughs> 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 so, when we get to the sages, to the rabbis, we're dealing with rabbis living in uh, Israel under Roman rule. What do we know about Roman rule? Pam, what do we know about Roman rule? I don't know which answer you're like. When I think of Roman rule, I think of uh, a lot of violence, bloody violence, uh, you know, sacrifice, not uh, no value for human life. Human life is cheap. It's Actually, for sport. Dominating, controlling many nations. Lots of tribute. Lots of tribute. So you got to work hard to pay your Roman, right, overlords so that they don't use you for sport in the uh, arena next. Arguably, it was worse than Greek rule. Arguably, it was worse, if that was possible, right, than Greek rule. What comes to mind, I think, under Roman rule is taking the Jews out with a menorah. Or is that the Greeks? So you're you're talking about the sacking, right, of the temple. So that, that was the Romans for sure. So in seventy, right, in seventy CE, they destroy everything, right. Um, so who's heard of Rabbi Akiva? <laughs> Rabbi Akiva was backing at one time a messianic figure, Bar Kokhba. They rebel against Rome, and when they do that, this warrior, messiah-type guy, Akiva believes in him, and Akiva has the popular support, Bar Kokhba has the military support, and they rebel against Rome, and what happens? They lose. (laughs) Lose is one way to describe what happens, right? They are decimated. So when we sit at Yom Kippur and we read the martyrology about the skin being flayed off their bodies while they are still alive, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the repercussions of revolt against Rome. All right. You take a bunch of Jews living in that climate, and they're going to be celebrating for eight days a military victory against an occupying force far stronger and greater than them and their ability to beat them and kick them out of the land. You're living under Rome and you're one of the Jewish leaders. What do you feel about this holiday? Scary. It's really scary. 
So it's not innocuous, right? It's not like this little holiday that nobody really cares about because we live in Christian America. It is a terrifying reminder both to the Jews and to the Romans of what has happened there and what everybody knows could happen again. The Romans know that. That's why they crucify Jesus, right? Because they know what these Jewish upstarts can start. They know what can happen. This is startup nation. Like they can like start something and it goes huge and then we get our butts kicked. And we will have none of that. So they crucify anybody who's going to even look like they're causing trouble. So comes this, you know, Hanukkah business, and the rabbis essentially say, well, yes, it was a military victory, and yes, that was really important that we took back the temple, but what's really critical, what we really want to understand about this holiday is that there was one little cruise of oil when they took that when they took that temple back and it was only supposed to last for one day and it would have taken a long time to get more oil like the festival would have been over they should have waited but they didn't they were so eager they were so faithful that they could not wait to light the menorah. They could not wait to rededicate the temple and do all of the Jewish ritual, the Israelite ritual that belonged in the temple. And so miraculously, that one cruise of oil lasts for eight days. Let us light lights to commemorate the miracle of the faithful, the miracle of renewal, the miracle of things stretching far past where they should to light the world at this season of darkness, right? Way safer holiday. Way safer holiday. Look at Rabbi Arthur Waskow's piece that I gave you. Oh, I didn't give you? Uh, well, that's why I can't. I copied 25, and then I, they kind of got gone. They're not in the staples. I added them last minute. There it is. I feel so clear now after all of my life wondering why when people ask me what is Hanukkah about, and I would say the two things, the, well, there was the, you know, the Maccabees won against the Greeks, and therefore the miracle of the oil. <laughs> like, I know I always put the two together, but I didn't understand really what they had to do with each other, so now I'm seeing they really had almost nothing to do with each other, yeah. except for the fact of the rededication. Well, had my confirmation students shown up, <laughs> this is what I was going to teach them. Say more. When they were really gathering for the slogan in the Warsaw Ghetto was death with honor because it was only the youth that was left and they had to decide whether they would allow themselves to be taken or whether they would fight and they prepared to fight So this, in a way, has the same 
Yep. Oppressive regimes at some point, right? Same as the women having their timbrels packed. How did Miriam and the women have timbrels in the desert just to dance and celebrate, right? They, they fled. They were told, get out. And the rabbis say, because they had their timbrels packed. Because they believed. They were unleavened. They were, they were unleavened. Because they believed redemption would come. They weren't sure when, but they prepared for it. Just like you're saying about the, the cruise of oil being placed there. So let's talk about that. I want you to hold that because that's that's where we want to go. Because I, I think that's exactly where we want to go. I want to ask something. Could that be the the, the, the murder of the Jew that ate the pig? Could that be the reason why that Orthodox guy killed Rabin? Hundred percent, I think. I mean, I made that. I drew that yeah, that parallel. Yes, I, I drew that parallel. So yes, I think so. I think it's the same instinct that says, if right, if you do that. You're going to destroy us all, and so my I get to be a Rodaif. I have the obligation to come after you, to pursue you, and to destroy you, because you're going to destroy us otherwise. But the ultra-Orthodox Israel now are preparing garments for the new temple. Uh-huh. Finally, so I, the Volpe article sort of honors that idea, which I certainly don't believe in, that that we should be preparing for the third temple. I mean, it sounds like that's a good thing. Right. No, I think what she's, I think, I, I don't know because I didn't read it, but I would assume what Rabbi Wolpe was pointing to was this cruise of oil got found because somebody believed, yes, we're defeated right now, but someday, right, the people who believed we would return to Zion. You know, somebody bought a piece of land because they believed, yes, we're vanquished right now and exiled right now, but I'm going to buy this little piece of swamp because I believe someday we will return and there's got to be something there for them to start with. I believe that's kind of the hope. the message, the hope. Right, Sheldon? Uh, why hasn't over the uh, centuries the Jews reconstructed back to the original meaning of Hanukkah? So there's less light and more... Uh, revolt. More revolt. So why why haven't we gone back to to that message? Yeah. I think largely because there's not a great audience for it right now. Never We're living in America. It, you know, like a, I, I don't think there's a. Where's the villain? Yeah, who's the villain? We, we've had villains though in the century. Right, so for a lot of the Jewish population, living under those villains, going back to the original meaning of the holiday would have been dangerous. It would have been really dangerous. Now, that's not to say secretly, that's not what they're thinking every time they light a candle, you know, is we can take them, we can take them someday, you know, but not right now. So even though we're not under Rome or haven't been for 2,000 years, we were under somebody. We are still fearful of how we think the holiday. I think historically, we always lived under a regime that we knew 
you do, you do not want to lift up that this holiday is about overthrowing the regime. Like, it's just not a good idea. Um, and I, I think now Hanukkah for Jewish people is a very adaptive kind of a holiday. It's, it fits right in with what's going on with the rest of the people. And, and always has, is going to argue so. Rabbi Waskow. So let, let's look at his piece just for a little bit. So... <clears throat> So he's talking about the discomfort of the rabbis with the original meaning of Hanukkah. And so they they start telling this story of the bottle of oil at the temple, right? And what they're saying is the medium and the message cohere. What is he talking about? He's talking about, uh, if you skip down, uh, they had experienced the unconstitutional fusion of priestly and kingly power in the Hasmonean dynasty and they didn't like that either so the rabbis realized that their task was to transform the militarism of the Maccabees without totally rejecting it the rabbis were a movement for Jewish renewal not Jewish amnesia so we we don't need to we're not going to try to forget the holiday being about this this victory but we're going to reconstruct it all right. The past has a vote, not a veto. So, um, so they kept respect for the Maccabees alive, but muted. They did not canonize the book of the Maccabees. Who has the Maccabees in their canon? The Christians, ironically. And it ain't in Hebrew. It's in Greek. And while the rabbis provided for Torah reading on the eight days of Hanukkah, they did not assign the chanting of even part of Hallel, like which, which, which we say on other holidays. And the passage on Hanukkah and the Talmud is short, like almost a side discussion, which starts with my Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? And it's in a discussion of Shabbos candles. So it's not even a big deal for them. It's not doesn't make it into like, ooh, the festival tractate. Right? It's a discussion of Shabbos that they start talking about my Hanukkah. What is Hanukkah? All right. So in that story, after a military victory that should have made everything easy, it turns out not to be so easy. So... This military victory that should have been, okay, yay, now we're in control of everything. The rabbis lift up a story that says, not so fast. Yes, you took with your guerrilla army, you took the temple back, but guess what? What's the temple for? (laughs) You got your temple with your weapons and your battles and your strategies and your courage and your muscle and your hammer. All right, you got it. Well, what's it for? Oh, right. It's for worship. It's for ritual. It's for what we do. What we're about. Thank you very much. The rabbis. So in the So instead of the the plan for this dedication going right, they went ahead impetuously to make new light in the face of darkness as the Maccabees had rushed ahead to make new political and military hope in the face of despair. So let's take that idea, hope in the face of despair, but let's not leave it with the Maccabees. They had one version, but what what allowed the menorah to happen? They, they, They were impetuous. So yes, they won, and that's a good thing, that they had hope, the few against the many, Maccabi, me, Kamochabai, they great. But then they lit with one cruise of oil. So it should have been, here's your dedication, right? But that didn't happen. Why? 
The temple dedicators in the story acted with Maccabean courage and hopefulness. To the rabbis, it was crucial both to call for courage and hope and to do so in a sphere other than military resistance, which they now viewed, the rabbis viewed, as hopeless and dangerous and self-destructive. So yes, hope in the face of despair, the few against the many, amazing things are possible, but not to a crazy place of self-destructiveness. Yes, they won the battle, but what kept the menorah burning was something else entirely. That was about God. That was about the miraculous. It has nothing to do with your weapons and your battle plans and how strong you are. That has to do with something else entirely, the realm that we rabbis deal in, say the rabbis. So the story the rabbis told about the light was the story of the rabbis themselves, absorbing that the Maccabees' military victory had saved the nation, but that getting stuck there would be self-destructive. They needed to bring the higher consciousness of courage for enlightenment into the people's arsenal of spiritual weaponry. As for why Hanukkah altogether, says Rabbi Waskow, I think the history strongly hints it is rooted in solstice festival envy. <laughs> A wonderful joke on those who complain, complain today that its observance is too much based on Christmas envy. So he has a longer discussion about this in his book. But what he's saying is Hanukkah's always been solstice envy. It's never been a big deal. But if we're going to do it, let's do the light thing in the darkness, just like everybody else, right? The pagans, you know, being the big group who did solstice, the return of the light. When does that happen? December 21st. The days start to get longer again, right? So the shortest Right time of the light, and solstice celebrates the return of the light. What does Christmas celebrate? On December 25th, what does it celebrate? The return of the sun, S-O-N. <laughs> right? The return, the birth of light, which of course is about longing and hoping and believing in the return of the light. And it was their solstice envy that had the Christians move the birth of Jesus to December 25th. He was not born in December. Right? All the stories we know do not have him being born in December. They were on their way to the temple, festival, pilgrimage. That does not happen in December in Israel. So they move his birth to the December 25th out of solstice envy. And so we get this holiday, this military victory holiday, and we light some lights. And when do we do that in December? What's the date? Oh, oh, thank you. Right, right. Oh, so you can't put the date in December because that would be part of the solar calendar. We light Hanukkah candles on the 25th day of Kislev. And how does our calendar go? According to the moon. So we're not dealing with the sun and the days being shorter and the light coming back. That's not our frame of reference. That's not our frame of reference for time. Our frame of reference for time, for holy Jewish time, is according to the moon. Why? Why? Who said why? Carol? Because. 
<laughs> so that's just to say that for us, it didn't start as a solstice celebration. The solstice part was the others. Now, is it related? Yes. I'm going to tell you how in a second. It's related, I believe. It is solstice envy, I think, um, at heart. But, um, but, but, but our reference point is not the sun. Our reference point is the moon, and that's important. I'm going to tell you in a minute. It's always been a lunar calendar for us. Um, yeah, it predates the Roman calendar. It, pre, it was always, our, let's be clear, our lunar calendar has always been rectified by the solar calendar. We add a second month of Adar every so often to reset the lunar clock so that Pesach doesn't wind up in the summer. Right? You, have to, you can't just go on a lunar calendar, you lose time. So you have to put in a leap month. Right? So whenever we see Hanukkah all of a sudden jumps, Right? Hanukkah gets later, 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 or early, 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 and then boom, Hanukkah's really late. That's because we've added a second month of Adar that year to reset the clock. So it's been rectified by the solar calendar, but it was primarily a lunar calendar. That was a lot of how it was done in the ancient Near East. Rabbi Renner. Just an observation about calendars. If you look at the Muslim calendar, which is also a lunar calendar, it does not have that correct, Mm -hmm. which is why you see Ramadan actually float all the way through the year in the Gregorian calendar. That's what would happen to Shavuot, <laughs> if we didn't rectify and add a second Adar, it would be exactly like the Muslim lunar calendar and things would just keep moving, right? But for an agricultural people, that was unacceptable. You had to have your lunar festival. The 14th of your, the 14th day of the lunar month is when it's the brightest. I just gave you a clue for my next question. 14th day, middle of the lunar cycle, the moon is full, it's the brightest. That's when you have to have your pilgrimage festival at the harvest. We can't let it do all this, or, or the holidays were meaningless in ancient Israel. Okay, so 25th day of the lunar month, tell me about the moon. It would be dark! Because how many days are there in a lunar month? 28. So by the 25th day, if the new moon is the brand new sliver, the dark, 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 14th, it's completely full, it is, what do you call it, waning. Is that waning? Mm-hmm. Waning at the 25th. So at the darkest lunar month of the year, at the darkest point, almost the darkest point in that month is when we light candles. What do I love about that? (laughs) What do I love about that? We don't wait for the return of the sun. We don't wait for the return of the light. We don't wait for the birth of Jesus. We light the cruise anyway. When it's dark and when there's only enough oil for one day. We make light. We make the light ourselves. We don't wait. Why not the 28th? Well, you know. Then it would be Rosh Hashanah. Right, too close to Rosh So at the dark of the darkest part of the darkest month of the year, before any evidence of light coming back is happening, before the birth of anybody who's going to do it for us, we crazy Jews light a little candle, right? And we keep doing that for eight days. And if you do that long enough, you got a menorah. You've got that which gives light. And it is that light that we create out of our own trust, our own hope, our own crazy faithfulness. It is our own impatience. It's that light that dispels darkness. 
We're not waiting. It's not who we are. It's not what we do. So that it's tied to the moon, that it's right at the dark for me is really, really an important and wonderful part of our holiday. Turn to your spot on that page. It looks like this. It's a really bad copy. Oops, sorry. Yep. It's a really bad copy. But I wanted you to have it in your hands anyway. Say it again. How do you translate this information the religious Blanche, you are asking the $16 million question. I'm serious. It's a really... I know. Right? It's a... I totally think that you are asking the right question, and I don't know the answer. We keep trying. I think there's different levels of appreciation, which is why all y'all are here. I hope, it, right? That, that there's other levels that we just at younger right. ages we don't really get, and that don't make much sense, and, and that aren't so as compelling. And you can't, teach, you can't hope to teach it all at once. That's why you come back. Right? So much. Thank you, Lori. You want to say that louder and slower? <laughs> This is why we keep coming back. And we haven't even talked about dreidels. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Look, look at the bottom of your first paragraph. The soul you have placed within me is pure. Do you see that? It's The paragraph starts sanctuary and temple. Yeah? Actually, let's start there. We're, we're on the spot in it. We're on the really crappy copy on the back of your packet with the Hebrew and the English. Right? We don't have time for me. Usually, you know, I like to take you through the Hebrew, but we don't have a lot of time. So sanctuary and temple are found in every one of Israel. We're talking about Hanukkah. The Sfaremet's teaching on Hanukkah, right? Talking about temple, talking about menorah. What is he going to do? We know what Hasidism does. We know what Kabbalah does. God forbid you should think it's talking about a temple that existed in one place, in one time. Chas v'shalom. Chalila, chalila. It's always talking. Of course it has a dab, a deeper meaning. Torah is true for all time. If the temple's gone, then what would be the point of studying Torah? Because it's talking about the temple that each one of us is. The mishkan, the sanctuary that each one of us is. Because we know from Torah, it says, let them build me a mishkan that I may dwell betoham, that I may dwell within them. We've studied this together. These are present. What's present? Sanctuary and temple. Insofar as a person makes it clear to him or herself that all of life energy comes from the soul. Once we're aware that all of our life energy comes from our neshama, our bodies become a temple. The soul you have placed within me is pure. Elohai neshama tehorahi. We say it every morning, right? We say this every morning, reminding ourselves that we are not just a collection of nerves firing and whatever we are. We are energized by the soul. And so we are actually, each one of us, a temple. So we remind ourselves the soul you place within me is pure. What does that mean it's pure? that there is a deeply hidden point of purity within every one of us. You may have to dig under a whole bunch of rubble. And you may have to mop and sweep 
and haul a bunch of really heavy crap out, then you'll find this one little cruise, right? It's there. It can be really hidden because things can get really dark, but it's there. Even now, after the dwelling place has been hidden, it can be found by searching with candles. The candles are mitzvot. We need to seek within our hearts and souls in order to fulfill a mitzvah with all our strength. So let us dedicate ourselves to spiritual practices. That's how we search for that that place within. All right. So there's more. There's more good stuff there. The Sfarimet. So we talked about Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Gerer Rebbe. We've studied some of his stuff before. He was a Hasidic master. His students wrote what they could remember of his teachings down. So they often look a little disconnected because it's like, some, you know, you don't remember everything everybody says quite so accurately. Um, but beautiful uh, Hasidic traditions around. We shouldn't think it's that temple, right? It's, it's this temple. All right. Look at Rabbi Shefa Gold on Hanukkah. She's going to play on the same idea, right? That the book of Exodus contains instructions for building the Mishkan. We shouldn't think, God forbid, it's that one. It's, of course, us, always. Inside, among the nation of Israel, and inside our own hearts, God's message to us is that it is possible to stay connected with God at all times, in all places, even as you engage in the life of the world. But as the story of Hanukkah reminds us, even the holiest place can become desecrated. It is simple, if heartbreaking, to recognize the desecration of the physical temple. It is a much subtler process to probe the desecration of the inner temple. We examine the temple within by asking the very questions that confronted Judah Maccabee upon retaking the temple. What needs repair? What requires renewal? How shall we kindle the eternal flame? Hanukkah offers us an opportunity to rededicate ourselves to the holy, to our connection to God. As the days grow short and the night darkness long, we are invited to enter into the darkness of our own hearts. There, buried beneath the rubble of our disappointments, we find the miraculous spark of our divinity, the awesome knowledge that we are each created in the image of God. This is the spark with which we kindle our menorah. If we heal the personal desecrations we each have suffered and rededicate our lives to holiness, the miracle of Hanukkah happens inside us. Each night of Hanukkah, we light another candle. Each night, the light grows brighter, shining its radiance into our own hidden places. It is truly miraculous that the single spark of hope that we excavate from the darkest part of our hearts can ignite the radiant fires of passion that illuminate our way forward even on the darkest nights. Beautiful, yes? Beautiful. You can always count on Jeff. You can always count on Rabbi Golan. Saturday. 
nice, Margot. Because it's really, the, what's compelling to me is that we so often allow the darkness to define, right? We, but I'm desecrated, I'm disconnected, I'm flawed, I'm cynical, I'm depressed, I'm angry. And somehow we, st- we go, okay, so I can't connect. I can't. And for me, the really important teaching that Shefa brings from, you know, a long tradition of interpretations of this idea of light is that it just, it just doesn't take a whole lot to dispel a lot of darkness. It doesn't. And then once you got that, and if you just do another one, it dispels even more, and nothing is diminished. The light is not diminished in order to dispel that. So, we, in other words, you don't have to. It just—it's there, and it dispels darkness without anything happening to it. And so, it just takes so little to start one spark, one cruise, one little flame. And if we just do that one little bit, and we just do it again tomorrow. Right? Then we have this huge, amazing light-giving, darkness-dispelling, cynicism-dispelling, hatred and violence-dispelling force at work in the world. And it's easy to forget that. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org